Hey, hey, people of Earth, it's time to enter the Spoilerverse via our secret portal at the exclusive Arctic Club in beautiful downtown Seattle with our hosts, John and Kenrick. Welcome to Spoiler Country. Hey, if you're listening to our show for the first time and you're on one of the social medias that we're on, like Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, any of those kinds of things, you should always check us out on Spoilerverse.com. If you want to keep up with our latest episodes, you should bring out your smartphone, get into your favorite podcaster, find Spoiler Country, and hit subscribe. Then you'll get all our new stuff. And if you want to reach out to us, you can do that in two ways. You can call us and leave us a voicemail at 707-656-2080. Again, 707-656-2080. Or you can shoot us an email at spoilercountry at gmail.com. and 1940s crooners. Let's do that again. Treetop pruners and 1940s crooners. Welcome back to Spoiler Country. I'm Kenneth Regan. That is the invaluable Mr. Horsley. And today on the show, well, it's Dinesh Shamdasani, isn't it? It is, man. He is uh, formerly a Valiant. He was a producer in the Bloodshot movie. He's the current owner of Bad Idea Comics. Bad Idea. I love that name. Bad Idea Comics. Dude, that is such a good name for a comic company. Oh yeah, so great. Oh yeah, it's it's kind of a uh... yeah. I wish I would have thought of that name. <laughs> right? We should go back in time and take it for ourselves. <laughs> well, this is cool, man. He should be a lot of fun to chat with. He is, yeah. And he sat down with Melissa, and they had a great time, man. And, and it's so much fun. There's, they 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 got into the weeds a little bit on stuff, but it's pretty good. It's yeah. awesome. Yeah, it's. I can't see anybody coming on and chatting with Melissa and not having a good time. I, I agree. I can't see anybody coming on to any of our interviewers and not having a good time because we're all we're all so different. Oh, except we have, Casey. I can see that one. Yeah, I mean, fuck Casey, but you know. <laughs> Whoa, dude. I mean, you took it to a level, man. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. Sorry, Casey. I love you. Here's a Kickstarter for your child, child. Not chili. Go, go check it out. Oh, man. Oh. Well, this should be really good and it should be a lot of fun. Dinesh has, you know, quite the history. So why yeah. don't we just get into it and... Listen to him and Melissa in their own words. This is Spoiler Country, and I'm Melissa Sercha. Today on the show, I get to chat with film and TV producer and comic book publisher, Dinesh Shamdasani. Dinesh, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Thanks for being here today. How are you doing? Good. Very excited to be chatting with you. Awesome. We are too. I'm very excited. There's so much I want to talk to you about. You, you know, you've awesome. created and been a part of so many cool projects. You studied film at USC, then became the CEO yeah. and chief creative officer of Valiant. How did you how did you get into this business? How did you step into that role? At Valiant? It yeah. was it it's funny. Entertainment is is such a weird industry. But I feel like everyone's story is unique. It's like a, you've got to find a way through this brick wall. And once you find a way in, somehow the industry just shuts it behind you and no one else can go that way. <laughs> My way was I went to USC film school and I was very lucky. I got some advice when I was at, at USC, which was don't worry about going to school. <laughs> just try and meet as many people in the industry using that, that credibility as possible. And so I did a thing which a lot of students do, which is you, you pretend that you've graduated before you have, and you try and get oh, nice. internships and jobs, et cetera. And I very quickly learned that there was a very difficult path 
in the film and TV world. And, and it was around the time that IP was starting to become a thing with Spider-Man, the first film, the Tobey Maguire, Sam Raimi film, and the first X-Men film, both coming out and nobody in the business really understanding what was going on, why they were making <laughs> so much money. And every comic book fan in the world was five minutes ahead of Hollywood. Yep. And I thought I'd better take advantage of this. And so I was thinking to myself, what happened to Valiant? Valiant was my favorite. I was a kid of the 90s and I didn't know Marvel beyond really the biggest. I didn't really know comics beyond Spider-Man, the Hulk, Superman and Batman. Yeah. Maybe X-Men with the cartoons. So when I got into comic books, Valiant was just as legitimate as everything else to me. And I just gravitated towards that. It had an energy to it. So I was trying to figure out what had happened to it. I learned that they had been bought by a video game company called Acclaim. Hmm. that Acclaim had, over the years, published more books, but then Acclaim went out of business. They had some bad video game decisions that they made, and they took every division down, including Valiant. And that luckily for me at that point, there was going to be an auction, a bankruptcy oh. auction wow. for all the different assets, including Valiant. And I had no, no inclination that I was going to win this, but I thought, <laughs> I'll learn something. I'll go. It might be fun. I called um, a buddy of mine who I grew up with in Hong Kong, who had very wealthy parents <laughs> and convinced him to come in with me and be the money. And we went to this do due diligence, read all the documents. And I was very lucky in the sense that I think it was 86 parties did due diligence, all the biggest companies, Google, Sony, wow. everyone, Marvel. Heavy hitters. Yeah. So of course we expected they'll all come to the auction, they'll, they'll win. But when we went to the auction, there was only three parties, including us. There was the former CEO of Acclaim, there was us, and there was a guy who used to be a marketing manager at Marvel. Wow. And what had happened is the the legal documents were so messy that no one felt like they knew what they were bidding on. <laughs> but being a you know basically a uh, college student, I had had the time to go and meet all the former employees at a claim in the, in the publishing division and get a sense of what we were bidding on, which was actually pretty clean. We were getting almost all the rights. Wow. Still came in second. And the day that the auction ended, there was a fourth party that couldn't afford to bid, that had filed intent to use trademark applications, essentially blackmailing the winner. So the, the lead bidder pulled out. Oh, my God. The trustees went to the acclaimed seat, the former seat of acclaim. He had put his money elsewhere. So they came to us. We were the only party left. We said, great, big reduced price now. We're about to get into a legal fight. <laughs> and being a kid, I thought, oh, I'll figure this out. And then spent the next eight years trying to figure out how to win this fight, how to how to publish it was a, a mountain of of bad days wow, uh, and learning years that's incredible and how long did you end up running valiant because i did read that you know at some point there was another company that came in and bought it so how how mm -hmm. long did you spend with valiant i was at 15 years so i spent the first 18 years being a fan of comic books not knowing how to publish <laughs> not knowing anyone in the business trying to learn it trying to figure out how publishing worked and then the best thing that happened to, to us, the best thing happened to Valiant when I was there was the sale of Marvel to Disney. Mm. So what happened was Marvel was sold to Disney for $4.4 billion. And a lot of the big executives that had run Marvel cashed out. And there was a man named Peter Cunha, who's the CEO of Marvel. And I had read, I got a hold of the Harvard Business School case study on Marvel, the Marvel story, mm. which is about Peter and his philosophy on how to bring Marvel back from their bankruptcy. And I'd use that as my Bible for how to try and structure uh, Valiant. And mm -hmm. so when he cashed out, we approached him through his son, Gavin. They were looking to do something together. 
and spent about six months to a year convincing them and then negotiating with them to come in and be our partners. And at the same time, starting to put together the, the management team, the editor-in-chief, head of marketing, head of sales, et cetera. That's when Peter came in, he gave us the legitimacy and the financing to at least start that process. And we got to launch the company in 2012. Uh, so I was there for seven more years publishing, eight years trying to figure out how to publish, seven years of publishing. Wow. And uh, as we were there for seven years, we would raise money and we brought other investors on board. Eventually, one of our investors, a Chinese company named DMG, liked the business so much, they decided that they needed to own it completely. Wow. And so they did that. Okay. And that was, was that something that you were okay with or it just, that was the way it was? It, it is. No, it wasn't something I was okay with. It was, it was a, a, a hostile, aggressive situation. Oh, no. the, the entire time I was at Valiant, the entire 15 year period, I cannot think of a day where someone wasn't trying to buy the company out from me or, or get me fired, fire me, take over because it's such a valuable asset. It's this, it's such a rare thing. What the original Valiant creators, Jim Shooter and Bob Layton, Brandon Smith, David Lapham, all these comic book geniuses built mm-hmm. is really, really special. And it's not, doesn't have the awareness and strength of Marvel or DC, but it's probably the closest comp to those of everything else. Absolutely. I agree with that. And it was just, it was like a really dusty, dirty diamond Mm. that when we got it, well, there's a diamond underneath all this crud. And as we started to clean it up, people started to see that. And so DMG came in and initially they came, we were looking for a film financing partner. We went out to about 70 different companies, basically the same list that was looking at bidding on, on the Valiant assets. Yeah, And we got three offers, one from Amazon, one from the WWE, the wrestling company, and one from DMG. And DMG was by far the richest offer with the least controls. And so this is great. We'll take them. We'll take this, this deal. And over time, they decided that they wanted to be more and more in the film and TV world. And Valiant was doing very well publishing. And we had a lot of things we had announced, like the Russo brothers and the Bloodshot movie, Vin Diesel, et cetera. Mm-hmm. They wanted to get more and more involved. And uh, I had the controls myself to keep them at bay. And they started to buy up other investors. And then I had the controls of Peter, team at bay. And then ultimately, they made a very, very lucrative offer. And Peter's an investor, and Gavin's an investor. And they said, we're going to take this. But they were very gracious about it. They said, look, you should, you should think about taking this too. Mm-hmm. So it took a day. And I thought to myself, all right, I'm going to tell them I'm going to take it. I'm going to try to kill the deal. Yeah. As many of you are trying to kill the deal. And I just didn't have the momentum. But no one, but it's, it was a good situation. It's one of the things I love Valiant. Mm-hmm. It was the dream come true. I would have worked there for free the rest of my life. <laughs> Ultimately, I, I did very well financially. And, and now I have, I'm much happier. I, I have so much opportunity and I'm getting to do so many cool things. That, yeah. That so, that well, that's good. I mean, and sometimes everything, you know, happens <clears throat> for a reason and leads you to better opportunities, like you were saying. And, you know, and, and I was going to ask you about Bloodshot. So you were still with Valiant when, when Bloodshot was made, the film, or? Yeah, yes, yes and no. So, I, so Bloodshot was, we started developing the Bloodshot film in 2008, oh, wow. before we even started publishing. And we went through all sorts of incarnations. I mean, at one point, Will Smith was going to play Bloodshot, if you can imagine that. Michael oh, wow. Bay was directing it. There was a long period when Matthew Vaughn was directing it. And, and these things happen in Hollywood. It's, an in, it's a very interesting process and you get to meet a lot of fan, fascinating people. Mm-hmm. And the movie we brought, we got to a place where everyone was very excited and wanted to make the movie. Sony, I mean. And we were casting. And we needed the right, they needed someone with weight to carry the film, the star. Mm-hmm. And we were talking to a bunch of different actors, Michael B. Jordan, Jared Leto, Jake Gyllenhaal, Vin Diesel, and Tom Rothman, the head of Sony. 
his favorite for the role was Vin Diesel. Yeah. In mind too, although I had to keep that secret. <laughs> and, uh, and we locked Vin and that essentially got the movie greenlit. And that was about the same week that <laughs> DMG managed to close the deal. And, and, and of course the first thing, and part of the deal of course was that I had to resign and I had built film and TV agreements as the CEO <laughs> and in as arm's length agreements. And a lot of publishers will tie themselves to, the agreements i tried not to do that i tried to run the company in a very uh, business forward way which i think was part of our success as well mm-hmm. and so of course i was a designee there was designees for who would produce the movie the board as long as the board approved that i was a designee they wanted me to be the designee and of course once dmg takes over they want their people to be the designee of course and so i got the call from sony from our executive at sony who was basically in tears because we'd worked together for so long and we have a really really good relationship with friends saying i they're telling me you have to be off the movie. It's contractual. It's something I can do. I told her, look, I, I totally expect it. I, I, I get it. It's okay. It's heartbreaking, of course, but it's okay. She's like, we're going to fight this. We're going to fight this. I don't know how we're going to fight this. We're going to figure it out. And But I ended up being back on the movie. So I missed about four weeks. What happened was our director, Dave Wilson, was a first-time director, but he's got a huge, uh, vast uh, swath of experience doing these super high-end video game trailers, commercials, video game little short stories, doing things for The Division, Star Wars, the Halo, the biggest brands. Wow. He's a genius. And our writer, Eric Heiser, has been nominated for an Academy Award for Arrival, and he wrote Bird Box, and is now show running this big show on Netflix, and, written, and had written comic books for us as well, got nice. together. And they went to Sony, and they said, essentially, we want to put the weight of our, our, our leverage on the table in fact, what happened, I actually haven't said this public, I hope Eric doesn't get upset with me. <laughs> but uh, what happened is Eric, the studio wanted Eric to come back and do some last minute rewrites and, and do some production work uh, on the script. And Eric was very busy, didn't have the time for it. But once he found out, I hadn't told him I was embarrassed. I hadn't told him that I wasn't on the movie anymore. Hmm. David told him. And Eric called the studio and said, hey, I, I've been thinking about it. I know you guys want me back on the movie. I will do the work you need me to do. In fact, I will also do the production work and I will be as there for as much as you want. Of course, studio is very happy, and I will do it all for free. Hmm. The studio is like, "What are you? What's going on here?" So I just have one condition, and they said, "What's what's this is the story I've been told. What's the condition?" And he said, "I need Dinesh back on the movie." Oh, and wow. what I was told is that there was silence, and then I think it was Sanford Panich or Anjinetti, the heads of the of uh, Sanford Panich is the press of production, and Anjinetti was executive. One of them said, "I love me a gangster movie. You've got a deal." And then I got the call, and it wow. upset DMG and. <laughs> that they decided not to be involved. Wow, that's an incredible story, and so like, Eric and David, great, great fortunate people. like that you have so many. I mean, that just is a testament to your character, and you know, your working, you know, ethics. That so, yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, that many people would like stick up for you like that. That's awesome. Um, and yeah, because I was a very rare story in Hollywood. Yeah, you very hear the opposite. Very true. You hear about people getting the yeah the opposite. You know, closed closed doors and turning your back on turning their backs on people. So that's a really nice story. Thank you for sharing that with me. Actually, um, yeah, it was very freeing as well because it 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 gave me the ability to essentially just pour myself into the movie and and do whatever it took, and also it gave me the ability to say to people like this is why I'm working so hard. This is why I'm willing to sign this check over here. That's why I'm willing to go over here. That's why I'm willing to do this. And it it allowed me to much like when I was running Valiant help get other people to 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 race at that level yeah. and that was a really really invaluable experience to be able to to learn how to do that on a film set that's awesome and now will you be doing a sequel 
I can talk. Yes, I can talk <laughs> about it because I'm going to get in trouble. Okay, <laughs> but but I can say that we got we got a raw deal because of COVID. That's a lot of people have in a lot of different industries. Hundred uh, percent. Yeah, the movie came out the the COVID weekend, where where literally from our Friday to our Saturday, they were uh, reducing seating capacity by fifty percent. So there was no way to win, which yeah. is frustrating because we had a premiere on Tuesday, which was a big highlight day for me and the whole movie and. The, our executive attorney was saying, okay, so Tuesday, keep the, keep the afternoon free. The tracking is looking really good. We're looking like we're going to open 26 million. We hmm. want to sit down and talk about sequel if that happens. So here we are at, the, at the, the premiere on Tuesday thinking, oh my God, the studio just said sequel. We got a meeting potentially on the books. Nice. And then the Thursday is, okay, the numbers are going down. And Thursday, Friday, Saturday, it was like, not 26 anymore. It's 22, it's 20, it's 18, 17, 16. 12, 11, eight. we ultimately opened at 11, but it's become Sony's, uh, I want to be told that Sony's number one VOD film of all time. And, and I think number two on home video. And yeah. so now they're being very aggressive about doing something more. Good. Well, that's good that they're understanding about, you know, the situation because the press on it was pretty intense. I, mean, I remember seeing, you know, trailers for it every five minutes, you know, on television. So it was definitely like not lacking cool. in marketing, you know? Yeah, they felt very strong about it. They they, they saw the, the early tracking numbers and they, they wanted they saw a win. They were trying yeah. to push for it. Well, and you can't I mean, Finn Diesel, I believe, is the perfect, you know, person for the role and and he has so much box office draw that I mean you really yeah. couldn't have expected more if you had anyone else. We were lucky. We were very lucky to have him. Yeah, absolutely. So you also co founded Hive Mind, which yes produce you know shows like the expanse and the witcher how did that concept come about how did you you know put that together so uh, i had some people that i was working with when i was uh, at valiant two producers by the name of sean daniel and jason brown and we were working on several films together and we became friends and we had a very shared philosophy and we would talk extensively about i would i was very fascinated by their world their choice in life to be a producer it Mm. it it's difficult, very difficult path. And there was a time when it was a different kind of thing. It was lucrative and it wasn't as difficult. And you know, as corporations have come in and, and the movie business has changed to produce less movies and things have moved to television, it's become a very difficult job. We would talk about that and they would have the same point of view. And it just felt like producing was a 20th century job and that there was an opportunity to do it in a 21st century way. And so when I left, and we talked about maybe one day, we'll, you know, we'll try that. So when I left Valiant, they, they said, hey, why don't we do this? Yeah. And they knew a very successful veteran, very uh, respected television producer by the name of Kathy Lane. And she had started JJ's, uh, JJ Abrams' television division and produced all these amazing television shows, Fringe and Lost, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So the four of us sat down and we thought, let's try something different. Usually production companies are run by one person at the top, whether they're a producer or an actor or a director, someone who spearheads it and it's their taste, but also the company is limited by their taste, limited by their bandwidth, limited by their relationships, right? The old adage is okay. in Hollywood, it's who you know. Yeah. So we thought, okay, what if we, the four of us, pool those three things? We pool our taste, we have broader taste, pool our relationships, we have more relationships, pool our bandwidth. As long as we don't, have an ego about this. Hmm. We share. Not everyone needs to be cutting everything, but the goal is, as a publishing, everyone's cup runneth over overall. Maybe there's a way to do this. And we found that we were, I think, right. We were very successful. Six months in, 
which is if you the first year into a new production company, if you have one thing going into production, you've got, it's a miracle. Yeah. Six months in, we had four things. We had The Witcher went to production. Sean and Jason had been producing The Expanse. It was canceled at Sci-Fi. We all worked together to bring it over to Amazon, got it renewed for a fourth and fifth season. Now they're doing a sixth. That went to production. That's incredible. Blood Show went into production. And Scary Stories Tell in the Dark with Gamble Del Toro, that's our producing partner, went into production. Oh, wow. And so the four partners had to each go to a different continent, <laughs> essentially, to manage these productions. Yeah. And they've all been extremely successful, you know, particularly, you know, The Expanse and and The Witcher. And The Expanse, yeah, the as Witcher of... Just really... Yeah, The Witcher just went, blew up. And I, I played the video game... And I'm, 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 as I'm oh. sure a lot of people did. And then there were people that had no idea that it was a video game and just thought this was like a really cool yeah. show, you know, about magic and, and, and medieval, you know, times. But, you know, The Expanse is at an interesting journey, as you said, because it was canceled and brought to Amazon Prime. And I actually just interviewed Karina Becco, who did the comic book. Cool a few days ago and you know so yeah it's just a really interesting how it has like this cult following you know all these people all the fans sort of like rallied together to be like no we, we don't want this to be canceled and that's amazing the power that that has well, there were people with sean and jason spearhead that they've been producing that for years but it was it was just for all of us fascinating to watch we would get texts from amazon saying did you do this do what <laughs> they're showing us photos of pe- fans flying planes outside the amazon offices with banners that say save the expanse it was really wow. amazing it's a testament i think to we tried to do it at valiant too just build something that there is no substitute for in any medium and if you look at the expanse if you love hard sci-fi mm-hmm. there's nothing anywhere else doing doing that the books do it and the show does it absolute yeah. uh, hard physics hard science fiction, but with the storytelling point of view. Yeah, no, absolutely. There's nothing like it out there at all. Yeah. Not currently. And and speaking of comic books, so I'm, I, nice segue here. Uh, So I'm really (laughs) excited to talk to you about your new comic book publishing company, which I love the the name of it, Bad Idea. (laughs) So many great like things you can go off on that. So it's an interesting concept because you have, select retailers, no digital issues, mm-hmm. no variants. You're just putting out like two issues a month. What inspired this completely different kind of, kind of off the wall, if you don't mind me saying. Yeah. <laughs> it came from, it was a couple of things. And, and I think everyone at Bad Idea has a slightly different version of the orange story. So I'll, t- I'll tell you my impetus for it. Okay. That was very hard. It was, we were playing Moneyball. We were trying to punch above our weight. We were a tiny little publisher with tiny little resources trying to compete with Marvel as best as we could or as close to Marvel as we could. And I think we did a great job. I think we we set a ton of sales records. Often we were the number one independent publisher. We were the de facto best of publisher in the business the entire time I was there. And it just meant really just throwing man hours at it, throwing talent, just work, oh, outworking. And and that was tough, but it was also super fun. And you really build relationships in a different way that there. In that method. And mm-hmm. so I was very excited to, I was very sad to not be able to make comics anymore because it's just such adrenaline hit. You're, you're working, you're coming up with an idea and 60 days later it's on the stand versus 2008, you have an idea for something in the movie and 2019, the movie comes out <laughs> and 2020, sorry, the movie comes out and you don't even remember what, what, oh. who, how, what, why did that there? So I wanted to get back into comics. And I also wanted to work with my friends. I wanted to work with some my te- my, my partners at, at uh, Bad Idea, Warren Simons, who was our editor-in-chief at Valiant. 
Josh Johns, who ran the Valiant Digital Division, Adam Freeman, who was an Eisner, is an Eisner award-winning retailer and head of sales at Valiant, Hunter Gorenson, who was a head of marketing at Valiant. And then all the creatives that we, that we just, I think they're super talented and they're all friends, Matt Kent, Jeff Lemire, Eric Heiser, Louis LaRosa, Thomas Girello, Rob Diddy, Josh, I thought a hustle of them. And we just wanted, it was a bunch of friends wanting to get together again. And that's one half of it. And the other half is, you know, Valiant was, we didn't, we were never the number one book in the industry because we just were never going to be. We don't have Wolverine or Batman. Mm-hmm. We were easily many times, by far, the number one independent book. And so oftentimes we would beat The Walking Dead, which is just a huge accomplishment. Yeah. We're very, us very proud of the team. And we checked a lot of boxes. One of the boxes we didn't get to check because we didn't build the house. We just rebuilt it. The house was built by the original creators mm-hmm. of Valiant. So there was this checkbox. If you look at like the list of things to accomplish in publishing, it kind of felt like, wow, we had this, this foundation. So much harder if you don't have that. Could we do it? Is it possible? Do we have the skills? Let's try. And then having accomplished all this other stuff, it's kind of boring to do it again. <laughs> so we thought, well, maybe we try something different. And also without the burden, the benefit of Valiant is you have all those characters. The disadvantage is you have all those characters yeah. and you've got to <laughs> fight the 90s. You've got to fight people's preconceived notions. You've also got to fight all the stuff that's already been built. Like we're going to do variants. We're going to go to San Diego Comic Con. We're going to do digital. Mm-hmm. So we took a look at the business and said, is there like, actually like I have mine, I'm thinking about it. Is there a 21st century model? And so digital, for instance, and Valley was such a small component ultimately of our sales mm-hmm. and i think it is for a lot of publishers but we just don't like to talk about it and most of that we found was sampling it was people buying the first issue digitally liking it and then going and buying the first issue again physically and then reading the series physically mm-hmm. we thought it isn't that much work to also be digital but it's not worth the effort or trades for instance trades are great there's a whole audience that waits for trades but Trades are sold differently than they are than monthly comic books. They're not sold returnable. Mm. So you they're sold returnable, I should say. So mm. you've got this huge inventory. You've got to worry about returns. You've got to overprint. You've got to store those prints, the, those extra copies. And even a company like Valiant, in a few short years, you're sitting on seven figures of inventory in a warehouse. And that's money that can go towards other things that frankly I think are more important, like the quality of the books. Yeah. So we just tried to hack essentially publishing. That's interesting. Yeah. People don't often think of it in those terms of like as a business side, you know, as you were saying of all these, you know, books just sitting in warehouses and, and you can't sell them, you know, you, you have them and they were returned or whatever. And I think that, you know, people just don't know how that really works, you know, logistically. And if you want to keep a company afloat and <laughs> still making money and, and be able to pay your employees, you have to have, you know, profit. Yeah. But it's also speed. You're, you're, you know, all, everyone that works in publishing gets together at the conventions and eventually you're drinking and you all just, yep. you all just kind of <laughs> opine about, Oh, you've got that much in inventory. Let me tell you how much we got in inventory. <laughs> and you talk about all the other things that are problematic and the number, it all boils down to one thing. Everyone in publishing is trying to outrun this this panther that's chasing you it's about how quickly can you build the company how much can you build awareness how, how much can you build the next hit before this this publishing is a very narrow margin business mm-hmm. comes and takes you down and so everything that we're trying to do a bad idea is about giving ourselves as much runway as we can so that we don't have to worry as much about that and we can 
worry about the books. We've tried to give ourselves a place where if the books don't sell well, that's okay. They're good. They found their audience. It's not that we're not building books that I think everyone's going to like, but we're building books that some people are going to absolutely love. And a lot of these components, they sound silly. They sound like bad, bad ideas. Hence the name of the company. <laughs> yeah, I really like that. I think it's cle- clever, you know. <laughs> and, you know, are you are you concerned because, you know, you, you have these select retailers, you know, I went online mm-hmm. and I, I searched and I wanted to see, you know, okay, I'm in California. So I was like, okay, where are the locations in California? And, you know, it's limited. Are you concerned at all that like people that really want your content aren't going to be able to get it? Like, especially in the pandemic right now where, you know, a lot of people are ordering online because, you know, they can't leave their house or, or for whatever reason, are you trying to expand that distribution? still keeping it self-distributed, but expanding like the reach that you have. Yeah, I'm, I'm not concerned that people, let me put it this way. The bet that we're making is that we shouldn't be concerned that people that really want it are going to find it. Mm-hmm. They're going to do the extra work. They're not going to be happy about it. They're going to be a little annoyed with us. <laughs> and we have to make sure that the books are good enough and that they're full enough that they're worth the effort. But we're always looking at ad stores. We have six rules, bad idea rules that stores have to adhere by. Okay. And again, these are kind of like a 21st century hack. And we thought retailers would be much more upset with this. They've all been very generous about it. And what we found is that the stores have come on board. We've got 154 stores in our first wave. And we'll be announcing our second wave actually very soon. We've got another about 40, 50 stores there. The stores that have come on board happen to be the stores that are the most aggressive, the most forward thinking, do the best hand selling. They're the stores that frankly will do the best with our books. Because yeah. at Valiant, we found that there were stores that, because people, I don't know if people know, not all stores are the same. Some stores are 20% comics, 20% Yu-Gi-Oh, 20% Pokemon, 20% <laughs> video game. They're, they're diverse. Some stores are just Marvel. They didn't even sell DC. There are stores that literally will only sell Marvel books. That's their audience. Wow. And a store that's just a Marvel store or a store that's a Marvel DC store, they really have no business selling Valiant or Bad Idea books. Mm-hmm. And it's a waste of their time and our time to try and have that relationship. But they're nice people. They feel bad. They see us at Comics Pro. They're like, they always talk to us. I'm having trouble. What, what can I do? What are the best practices? And you really just want to say, you know what? Don't worry, man. So we'll, we'll go have a drink, but we don't have to, you have to buy any of our books. Mm-hmm. And this is a way to do that. What that allows us to do then is, again, just like the trades, is say to the 154 stores that we have, 250 locations that they have, we can double down on you. So one of the things we did, for instance, is we sent these ridiculous, giant, gaudy gold frames, like out of Mad Magazine, <laughs> that they have to put up in their walls in a prominent place, and we're going to send them a new poster every month. We couldn't do that with every store in the, in the world. It would be too much money. But when you have stores that are doubling down on your company, doubling down on your books, you can go the extra mile. You can do things that you can't do everywhere. And I think what will happen, and we're already, we, actually this week, we got our first orders in for our first book. We're seeing it already. We're getting a better response there. The percentage is mm-hmm. so much higher that the net is very much worth it. Okay. So it's kind of like dangling this carrot, you know, in, in front of them and saying like, this is a better product and we're going to make you jump through hoops. And then as a result, it's kind of like what they do in luxury branding in a sense, you know, where it makes it more viable. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. There's pieces from luxury branding. There's pieces from things like sneaker culture. 
mm-hmm. and design a toy culture. And then there's pieces from things like the disruptive nature of, I don't know, Dollar Shave Club, where, yeah, you can't just go on your Walgreens and buy a Dollar Shave Club blade, but you've got to go online. You've got to run through an extra couple of steps, but the product is better. You're saving money. They can advertise in a different way. And ultimately, they don't need to be in Walgreens. They do yeah. better without it. So there's, there's a bunch of different things we're trying to pull from. Okay. And as far as, you know, the requirements go for, for the comic book shops, are they allowed to, to mail a comic book to someone or do they have to come into the store to buy it? What we're trying to do, and I'll, I'll give you some examples. What we're trying to do is we're trying to foster a physical comics in comic store experience. Mm-hmm. They are allowed to mail order the books. We understand that there are people in countries that we may not have a store for the first year or two. Who knows? Yeah. Maybe never. We don't want to exclude anybody. We do want them to work a little harder to get them. Mail order is not something that today with the internet, with easy access to everything is an easy thing to do. It's, it's a little bit of work. So we do, we do allow stores to mail order. They cannot though send the books out until the day of release. So the people that are mail ordering won't get them in their hands prior to release or on the day of release. It may be a few days later. And so that's one of the annoying things. It's a little bit of a throwback, frankly. To a pre-internet culture, pre-digital culture. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I like that. It's. I mean, it, I grew up in a world without the internet, so <laughs> I know exactly what right. you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. And there's something. There's something that. Look, we're not in. We're not a. We're not only analog. There are components of what we do that are very forward-thinking and very new and, and and hopefully innovative in a good way. But there is a. There are some components, and one of the things that I like about what we're doing is that extra work ends up being part of the narrative, ends up being part of the experience. Mm -hmm. I remember having to chase down a copy of a movie that I was excited to watch and the six-month chase, or even if it was six days, added to the experience. It heightened the the anticipation. And so that we can do a little bit of that, I don't think it's a bad thing. Yeah, I agree. I actually stood in the rain at like two in the morning for a PS3. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Right. And now you go on Amazon... And you just click refresh, refresh, refresh until until one pops up. Exactly. Then it comes in the mail. Yeah. And there's something lost there. Not everything has to be that way, but maybe some of our books will be like that. Yeah. No, I I like that. It's it's interesting. I mean, obviously, like new generations, they they don't understand that, like because of the times now. But I like that it's kind of a throwback in a sense to, you know, it's kind of nostalgic in a way. Yeah. Yeah. We're seeing actually we're seeing a, quite a few. We have a, a bunch of different mechanisms to help the stores get pre-orders and to make sure, because it's a new idea, that people, we're trying to connect the two pieces. We're seeing the age group for our books a lot lower than we would have expected. Hmm. And what we're seeing is that the younger readers, or the younger buyers, are they don't quite understand that this is a throwback. They just think it's like new and, and kitschy and different. <laughs> so it's, it's kind of funny. Yeah. They think we've invented this. It's retro. <laughs> yeah. Futuristic retro. <laughs> right, exactly. So uh, getting into the actual content itself, how how are you going about selecting creators? Are you doing a submission process or is it an invite only, just people you know? How does that work? Well, we don't publish a lot. So we publish no more than two books a month, mm-hmm. which is a tiny, tiny amount to give you a sense Marvel publishes, I think, over 100 books a month. Yeah. DC's, I think, 80, 70, 80. Although there seems to be changing potentially as rumors going around. No, we, we have obviously, having worked in the business a long time, everyone at the company has relationships. We have writers and artists, et cetera, that, that we love and we're excited about. But there's a lot of new blood as well that we're, we're always looking to expand. 
Some of it is submission. Some of it is people that we see their work, either at a convention or online. Some of it are recommendations from people that we're already working with. Some people are just people that were like, hey, we haven't worked with this guy in a long time. We hear he's coming up for air. His book is finishing up. Let's just call him and see what, what he or she's doing. Nice. And are you doing, you know, like some of the larger companies like Marvel and DC, they do like exclusive contracts with people. Are you doing any of that or is everyone freelance and can do other things? Part of it's there's actually two answers to this. Uh, and I may be, I might, I might upset a lot of the other publishers by revealing something here. The, the writers were built, again, two issues a month. We cannot support even one writer's entire uh, workflow. And so we encourage everyone to be working and all the other things that they, they want to do. And to come here and do this, and it's a specific thing, but not to worry about being exclusive here. Now, the artists are different. The artists really only can draw a book a month, often at best. Mm-hmm. And so de facto, putting them on a book makes them exclusive. And so what you'll probably see from us in the next couple of months is a couple of announcements saying so-and-so is an exclusive artist. And yeah, they are, but not ten- I mean, technically they're not. It's just that they can't physically draw more than one book a month. So right. the fact that they're exclusive. <laughs> humanly In possible, that way, yeah. artist is exclusive. <laughs> okay. But it's not, at Valley, we would, so we we were worried about being a feeder system for Marvel and DC, and DC very much, Dan Didier especially. He he had every one of the Valiant books on order and read them straight away. <laughs> and they would immediately call, anyone knew. It got to the place where we would announce somebody and he'd call them, try to bring them over to DC. He was such a fan of the books, which is so flattering. But we were in this war because we don't want to be, you see it a lot in sports, the smaller team that's punching over their weight becomes a feeder uh, for the bigger, well-moneyed team. So we would put a lot of the people that we were bringing on board and we were excited about an exclusive. I think at one point we had 40 exclusive uh, writers and artists, but that's a different process here. We're actually doing the opposite here. Yeah. Yeah. You're just completely like bending the norm. Well, what we know of the norm now, I guess. But I think that's right. really interesting and it could be something that other people might even copy, you know, in the future, to be honest. But potentially, yeah. I mean, I think some of the the great gifts so far for Bad Idea has been that everything that we've predicted, all the projections that we made, we've exceeded them tremendously. We didn't, we have 154 retailers that launched 254 locations. We had budgeted for 25. We thought mm-hmm. there's 25 retailers that either are our friends and will feel pity for us or <laughs> will think this is cool. Yeah. To be 10 times that, the sales numbers that we just got, I mean, we have a huge problem that we're going to have to solve this weekend at Bad Idea, which is we haven't printed enough copies for the orders that just came in. So I'm not really entirely sure what we're going to do. We have to figure that out. That's a champagne problem to have. Yeah. But I think no matter what happens with Bad Idea, it'll it'll be interesting. It may be an interesting, spectacular crash, failure, or it may be something that maybe a lot of other people pick the pieces of and, and say that's innovative and we're going to try that too. Yeah. Have you had any pushback from people in the industry that are like, what are you doing? Like, this isn't going to work. <laughs> we haven't had pushback. We've had a lot of this isn't going to work. You know, when we, now with uh, the pandemic, we've all been essentially under house arrest, right? But yeah. before that, when we would see them at conventions or at the the comic industry events, we would see the other publishers and they would just, you know, kind of elbow us and be like, what are you guys doing? It's not going to work. It's crazy. What do you really do? What's the real plan here? They They think that we're just <laughs> saying this and that there's a, we're not actually going to fall through. And we're like, no, 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 this is why it's going to work. And you sit down and talk to them and they go, huh, that's so crazy. It kind of makes sense. Yeah. But we haven't really seen any, I expected a lot more pushback, but we haven't expected retails to get upset with us. One of, one of the rules that we have in the company is you can't sell any of the books for more than cover price for the first 30 days. Oh, wow. We don't, because we're in select stores, because it's going to be hard to get our books 
we're of course aware that there's a speculative culture to comics. <laughs> we don't want to feed into that. We don't want to build a limited edition manufactured collectibles. Mm. And so we're insisting that any store that sells our books can only sell them for cover price for the first 30 days. Okay. That hopefully will stamp out that initial kind of speculative bubble. And we're going to be very, very aggressive about it. anyone breaks those rules and they're out. Yeah. Well, and it, in an interesting sense, though, with such, you know, a limited amount of retailers currently, that may change in the future. And if the books take off, in a sense, they are kind of collectibles, right? Because they're hard to get. Yeah, I, my personal hope is that we grow slowly and people look back in a year or two or three and say, wow, the, when they first started, 154 stores, that's not a lot. That's a mm -hmm. very small percentage of the stores in, in just America, let alone the world. Yeah. There won't be that many of them. These books are really hard to get. And I really want them because this company is a vibrant, exciting company and I want to have their whole line. Yeah. Yeah. You'll probably have people selling them on eBay for like $300. <laughs> we put, we did, we did put one book out in, in, in talking about everything we're doing seems to, to break our projections. We put one book out called The Hero Trade. Hmm. which we kind of did as a little test, but also during the pandemic, we wanted to, stores were, there was a lot of uncertainty for comic book stores. And we wanted to help them as part of the community. Mm -hmm. We knew we hadn't put a book out yet. And there was a little, a little excitement. So we had an eight page story. All of our books are going to come with eight page stories in the back. That's one of the things we're doing to try and say, we know you had to work a little harder. Here's a little extra. Yeah. Hopefully to make a little up for it. We had an eight page story that Matt Kent wrote and David Lapham drew. That we were absolutely in love with and we said, you know, what if we just print this as a little eight-pager on cheap paper stock and mm -hmm. send it in almost like an ash can? Actually, Mark Nathan, who's a retailer, comics, cards, and collectibles, was saying to us, you guys should do an ash can. People can sell it for $20, $30, $40, and it'll help the stores out. So we said, okay, we'll do that. But we kind of have a bad idea tone that we try and hit. So mm -hmm. what we did is we came up with this kind of mean idea. We sent one to every one of our 154 stores with a letter. And the envelope was not, it did not say bad idea. The book does not say bad idea. And the letter doesn't say bad idea. The letter says, hey, this is our first comic book. Technically true. We love your store. Also true. Can you please sell this? Put on your shelf and sell for $3.99. And if you want more, they're three bucks a piece. Email theherotradergmail.com. And we were trying to make it look like kind of a self-published, almost like a zine. Maybe someone who had chopped at the store for years, was in love with comics, made their own comic book. And sent it in saying, hey, can you please sell it? And stores get this a lot. So we thought, well, maybe we'll fool them. And we also know the direct market isn't really set up to take a chance on an unknown tiny little book. Yeah. And David Lapham, who's an absolute genius and has an incredible style, if you don't look for too long, if you look just at a glance, you could think, oh, this is a super talented kid from SCAD that just, that just started. And we put the book out there and only four stores emailed us and said, want more copies. Wow. One of them, I think, gambled that this was Lapham trying to do something interesting. The other three just thought it was interesting. Combined, I think, 60, 70 copies were ordered from those four stores. And then uh, once the order deadline passed, we announced on Twitter that our first bad idea books in stores. And no one believed this. And we said, it's called <laughs> the Hero Trade. And no one believed this. And we put a picture <laughs> up of it. And no one believed this, except for the store owners who were like, oh, no. And everyone was <laughs> like, what are you talking about? Why are you so upset? And they're like, oh, I think I threw that away. Or, oh, my God, let me go fish it out of my dollar box. Oh, my God. And it was just an explosion. And that book now, we couldn't believe it. That book became one, it has to be one of the most talked about books last year. 
it's a $1,500 book if you can even find a copy. Oh my gosh. What an interesting experiment too, to, to go that route. And, and now everyone that listens to this is going to be like, I'm going to pretend I'm (laughs) and send and start sending my stuff. (laughs) But I think part of the success is man, David did it. It's an amazing story with that really gives you the hint of this broader narrative. It's the the premise is there's this guy kind of like a Quentin Tarantino type character and a low life. He's driving around in his car and in the trunk, he's got a superhero, like a Superman type. <laughs> he's driving from criminal organization to criminal organization saying, I got the, I got the biggest superhero in the world. My trunk here, he's dead. I'm going to cut him up. I'm going to sell pieces. You want the, the legs? $2 million. You want the eyes? 50,000. 10,000, I can give you a thumb. And he's going to do this for one night. He's going to get the money. He's going to go off and live in paradise. And I think that really captured people's imaginations. And they were really excited about it. And we had, we had, we had complaints from stores saying, I don't know what you've done. My phone, I had to turn my phone off. It wouldn't stop ringing because I'm one of 154 stores. One store had so many requests. They decided to rip the book, every page apart, laminate every page, just <laughs> so people would stop asking them. They could come into the store and read it if they wanted. Wow. Wonderful That's a huge compliment, you know, and it also kind of shows you too how, there's a little bit of like snobbery, you know, because the book was obviously written by super talented people and, you know, drawn by super talented people. And for stores to be like, oh, I don't, I don't want this because there's no name attached to it. You know what I mean? It kind of shows you that side of things as well. But I think also they just don't have the time. It's such a hard job. The, these people are deciding what they're going to order mm-hmm. four months ahead before the marketing cycle has even started. That's how far ahead they have to order. And they don't know if it's going to be a torrential rainstorm the week that the book hits and the book, no one's going to come in. They don't know if it's going to come in damaged. Mm-hmm. And they've got to do this for thousands and thousands of products every week. Yeah. Uh, and then they've got to be expected to read all the books because even I, when I go to store, how's this one? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you got to think they look like, well, I got too much work. So there's no way they can even look at it. I would be a terrible comic book shop owner because I would just buy everything. <laughs> I just love yeah, to you know, read and I would just buy it all. <laughs> and I think some of them, some of the unfortunate ones that don't last very long, they do that. I, I would be, I would be a terrible store. Yeah. Gives me the heebie-jeebies just even thinking about all that stress. Oh yeah. No, I would never, I would never survive that. <laughs> <laughs> well, and the first, so the first comic book that you have coming out with that idea is releasing soon, right? I mean, you had the pre-order for it. When's that coming yeah. out? And and kind of tell me a little bit about like what it's about. I, I read some sure. some stuff on it, but I'd love to hear in your own words. It's coming out. It's coming out the first Wednesday of March, March 3rd, 2021. It's called ENIAC. ENIAC's a real thing. It um, stands for Electronic Numerical Integrator and Computer. Cool. And it's a real computer that was built. It's the world's first supercomputer built in the 40s. And Matt Kint came up with this idea and wrote the script. Doug Braithwaite is drawing it. Diego Rodriguez calling with great cover from Luis La Rosa and Laura Martin. And the premise is this. It's kind of set in the real world, but it veers off. The premise is, the backstory is 1940s, during World War II, the Allies are doing anything they can to win the war. And they have a bunch of projects, most famous of which is the, the bomb, the atom bomb. Yeah. But real life, they were also trying to build this supercomputer. And the, pro- the, the problem they were trying to solve with ENIAC was they were trying to figure out how to calculate these huge mathematical problems for troop deployments, missile velocities and trajectories, weather patterns, because they've got to deal with all this stuff. And this is now it's very easy. Back then they didn't, they couldn't do it by hand. They had to build something to do it. 
And so we propose, okay, so they're, they're doing this and they're building the bomb and all these other things. Okay. What they inadvertently do is create the world's first AI in ENIAC. Mm-hmm. And so the bomb is finished. They shut down the ENIAC program. They drop the bomb on Hiroshima. In real life, three days later, they dropped the bomb in Nagasaki. Now, this is where the conflict takes a little bit of liberties. Mm-hmm. They dropped the bomb in Nagasaki three days later, and all of the high command of the, the allies says, what, what just happened? Another bomb was dropped. Who authorized that? How did this happen? And they get a message from ENIAC. Congratulations. You've created the world's first AI. Mm-hmm. I did the math. One bomb wasn't enough. I took the liberty of dropping a second. Oh and then ENIAC launches three more, or tries to launch three more at the future enemies that is projecting out the cold war etc and and then the backstory continues how they tried to stop ENIAC, how the allies have stayed the allies for 60 years because this is the longest period of time in modern mm-hmm. history that a group of allies have stayed together and we don't really know why in truth in real life and then it's convenient we propose okay it's this this greater threat and we go through all of this but the book really starts this is the backstory the book really starts in present day there's two FBI agents. They've been hired by the Secretary of Defense. And he's, they're told this story. And they're told, we discovered, we've been trying to hack ENIAC for decades. We've discovered a program running in the background of our satellite. It's a countdown. In three days, this countdown ends. We think ENIAC is going to launch nukes all over the world to take out humanity. So your job is you've got to go find ENIAC. Mm. You've got to go back and find the original creator, the guy that smuggled it out into Russia, the people in Iran who they took down the nuclear program in the 80s, et cetera. You've got to track ENIAC down. You've got to figure out how to kill it. You've got to kill it before it kills all of us. Wow. So it's kind of a big Chris Nolan espionage science yeah. fiction story. It's interesting how like the minute the AI is created, it almost becomes instantly sentient. Yeah. And it, it's it's a common trope in, in, in storytelling. And what we propose, and without giving too much away in the book, is that the creator is very much trying to figure out how to get it to learn faster. How to teach it to ask questions. And so we try and mimic anyone that has kids. One of the fascinating things about kids is you forget, you know, if you don't remember what you were like as a kid, and to watch them, they really are little computers They're struggling mm-hmm. for their first. You can almost see the synapses connecting with their first words. And it's so fa- fascinating how quickly they start to teach themselves to learn. Yeah. And so we try and mimic that a little bit. And the story is, I mean, we're certainly trying to give off a very aggressive testosterone-driven point of view with the book. And there are components in that. But one of the things we're trying to maintain is the big finish because Matt's come up with something really organic and surprising. And it really plays with kind of our humanity, our identity, and what the human condition is. And I think people are going to be really excited about about where he takes that fourth issue. Awesome. So before issues total? Yes, that's a four-issue story. Okay. Okay. And I read uh, online, I, I went and looked it up and I read the the B side, you know, that you had mm-hmm. posted for it. Which oh, great. I thought was really cool. And I love that the line that's, you know, like a video game with save points, I close my eyes and go back and start over. And I thought that was really interesting because you can take that, you know, literally or figuratively. And it's an interesting way to like think yeah. about memory, but he actually can rewind and go back and start over is, is he, and I know you can only tell me so much, but is, is mm-hmm. there a lot of characters that have that ability or is he specifically the only one that can do that? He's the only one, but we've talked about, this was a much larger story that we started to play around with. And, and we just fell in love with the idea that you would have this team of superheroes and they would go in and immediately get killed because it's hard. Cause how do they know what to do with this big threat? And you've got one character who watches them all die 
reloads, explains to them, this is, this is what we're going to try next. And he just keeps trying over and over and over again. Of course, they don't really know whether he has his power or not, because every time they do it, it seems to go right. They don't remember all the times it didn't go right, he had to reload. And also the idea that what would happen if, there, if he got to a place where the apocalypse happened, some kind of traumatic event like that, and he tried over and over and over again, all different permutations, and everything was worse. And mm-hmm. the best course of action for the future was this, essentially, Holocaust. And what would that look like? And we just thought those were two really interesting scenes. And so we built that as an eight-pager. And if people like it, I think we'll, we'll go and try and break the rest of the story. But our, but our premise is that he's the one. Although it is interesting. We hadn't thought about that, but there could be another. Might, I might pitch that to the team. I yeah. steal that if that's okay. Yeah, go for it. <laughs> Happy to um, <laughs> and that's And that's part of what, we, what we're excited about with the eight-pagers, the backup story, the B-sides for each book is... They allow us to not have to worry about, is this a commercial enough idea to stand alone? Is there enough meat on the bones for it mm-hmm. to be a full issue or full issue? So ongoing, can we do something just experimental? Can we use talent that doesn't have the time to do something more encompassing? Or maybe it's, it's not clear if they're ready yet or not. You can find something really interesting there. and You can just push the boundaries of the medium. And very much the way the EC comics used to do in the 50s. Mm-hmm. They got those great you know, weird science, weird fantasy, Tales from the Crypt stories. Yeah, absolutely. Like the possibilities are are limitless when you start getting into a world like that. You start creating a world, and and like yeah. you said, you can have you know different different characters that maybe don't exist in this you know these four issues, but you're like, oh, there's a spinoff here, and you know a way to go in this direction or a crossover. You know, you just never know what what's going to happen, and especially when you get a response yeah. from fans if they really are into the story. Yeah. And it gives us the ability to to kind of have fun in connecting them, playing with expectation, and really rewarding people that are there with the with us on this journey. Yeah. Well, I have one comic book store where I live, and so yeah. I will be definitely, you know, awesome. I'm going to give them a call and be like, "Hey, you guys need to get this because thank you for supporting. I need to read it." Yeah, I know for sure. And you know, before I let you go, I I want to bring up one more thing. You're you have a, a new film company, All Nighter. Yes. Yes. And you've got some really cool projects coming up. Gideon Falls, Luther Strode, Final Fantasy, which I'm very excited about. I'm a huge Final Fantasy nerd. So what can you tell us about that and what, what's coming up with that? All Nighter is really a spinoff from Hivemind. What happened was we had The Witcher, which became such a huge, mm. really cottage industry. And I can't say too much about that because Netflix may, may literally assassinate me. They have people watching constantly. But there's a lot, I'm even deciding whether I should say, there's a lot of Witcher things coming. Mm. And we found that, that ourselves really building two companies, Hivemind, which was the Witcher company, then everything else that we were doing. And we found this moment in time last year where we had this first look deal on the table from Sony Pictures. We had a big video game consultancy. We had a lot of different projects. And we thought, you know what? We should just formalize this. And so we built All Night. And All Night is essentially everything we were doing at Hivemind other than the Witcher mm. and then everything else that we're doing going forward. So we're doing things like Gideon Falls, the awesome Jeff Lemire, Andre Sorrentino comic book. Yes. We've got a, I don't think it's announced. So I should be careful what I say here. We've got an amazing showrunner, an amazing network on board, and that's going very well. We are doing Strange Tale of the Strode, Justin Jordan and Trad Moore's book. We've got a director on board that. I don't even announce that either. And uh, sorry, I don't mean to tease. I'm just, I just that's okay. in trouble. <laughs> it is spoiler um, country, you know. <laughs> weird Fantasy, which is, you know, we just saw my EC. Yeah. It's an amazing easy title that just has some of the greatest science fiction stories of all time. And we've got a massive, massive group of people. I mean, some really heavy hitting, globally renowned creators that have 
that have just knocked on our door saying, this is my favorite thing. I can't believe anyone else even knows what this yeah. is. You got to let me in. Of course, please come in. And so we'll have an answer on that soon. I'm very excited about that. I think that'll, that'll turn some heads. That's and that's just a crazy, the point of view on that is the, the showrunners are just have gone. It's awesome. Yeah. So we're just doing a bunch of new stuff uh, at All Nighter. It's been a lot of fun. That's it's a slower awesome. process, but, but it's a fun world. Yeah, much slower than that. As you said, the comic book industry goes a little bit quicker than the film industry, yeah. but you know, the content all gets enjoyed in the end, essentially. Yeah. And I think and what we've done is we've really taken that that hive my point of view and we've encompassed it all night. And I think I'm hoping that what will happen is we'll have you have this hit rate as a production company that's like one fifty things goes. Mm. And that hive mind we found a much higher hit rate. And I think that all night it will be even higher because we're I guess Jerry and requiring it, right? It's like <laughs> money, many less projects, much more attention to each one, a lot of love. Don't take on anything unless you, producers have a tendency to take something on because they think it's commercial and it's going to get made. Right. Like, it's okay. You guys do that. We're going to do the things that we love, whether they're commercial or not. And I think Weird Fantasy is really a testament to that model where I didn't know that anybody would care. And it's probably our, the thing that people have asked us the most about and the thing that's moved the fastest. I think it's a testament to following the things that you love. Yeah. Now that makes sense. And I have to also ask you, when do you sleep? <laughs> you are so busy. <laughs> no, you know what? It's you, I actually sleep. I sleep well. I didn't have value. It was a period of value where I slept like two or three hours a night. And it's a really, really, really bad. I didn't know. That, you hear these stories. There's like a currency for I don't sleep that much. I'm such a hard worker or like the military and sleep three or four hours. <laughs> all, all nonsense. Uh, I gave myself some, some physical problems for a short period of time because you really do need to sleep. No, so I, I sleep. But what I do is I have a, a team of people that I work with, like all the people at Bad Idea. Amanda Cruz is, is my partner at All Nighter. And it's really about making sure you're being super efficient. Brevity is very important being super disciplined about work and trusting, not having ego, you know? So, so right now, Amanda, I, I'm here talking to you. I just left a meeting that I was on with Amanda on a Zoom with two other people we're looking to partner with and she'll take the second half of that meeting and the next time I'll do it and she'll be able to do something else. And you have to worry from an ego standpoint of, am I going to be cut out of something? Am I going to miss something? Is it not going to go as well? It's about finding those the right people that, that you trust and that trust you. And I think that allows you to have that, at least a better balance, a work-life balance. Yeah. I like that. That's really refreshing. Not something you hear often in the entertainment industry. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm trying to be a little different. Yeah, I can tell. Well, I think a bad idea is probably going to really push some boundaries and I'm excited to see, you know, what the content and, you know, how you guys fare, you know, in the, in the coming years, because I, I think it's really interesting. And you're Thanks. definitely you're definitely stirring up, you know, some some hype and there's yeah. there's a lot of talk about it. So congratulations on that. Thanks. Thanks so much. Yeah. And thanks for being on here today. It's been really fun. I've enjoyed getting to learn more about you and getting to chat. And please come back, you know, anytime to promote any of those things you couldn't talk about now and we can maybe talk about them <laughs> in the future. <laughs> this has been a blast. Thanks so much for having me and thanks for the time. This is Absolutely. I, I would be I'd love to come back. Absolutely. Awesome. Thank you so much. All right. Thanks. And we're back. That's right. We are back. Back in the saddle again. Well, <laughs> I hope you guys really, really enjoyed that as much as we did making it for you. And if you like what you heard and you want to hear more, 
got to go check out SpoilerVerse.com because at SpoilerVerse.com, we have a plethora. Plethora is such a, it's such a snobbish word. I like it, though. <laughs> it's, it's a good word. <laughs> we have an obscene amount of oh, interviews obscene. with amazing directors and artists of all walks of life and editors and writers and oh my god are you a lover of comic books like we are and then there's so many so many amazing people from the comic book world over at spoilerverse.com and i highly implore you to go there and check it out yeah and while you're there you can check out all the other podcasts on our network like bridges and geekdoms and funny book forensics and haphazard adventures and nerds from the crypt and so many more misery point radio episodes all the time misery point radio is about a ton of great stuff out there go check all of them out and Check out all of the reviews and previews and articles we have going up every single day for you. Every day on Spoilerverse.com for you to check out, to read, and to love, and to like, and to comment. We have a store link. If you want to help support the site, you can do it two ways. One, go to our Patreon, which is patreon.com slash country, or go to our store link in the middle of the site there and get a t-shirt, a face mask, a hoodie, something. Look fly as hell and help support the site when you do that because we get a dollar or two. And, you know, maybe you want to talk to us. If you do, you can do it obviously on all the socials. But if you go to scpod.us slash discord, you can join our public discord server and come chat with us all day long. I couldn't say it better myself, dude. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. You just mouthed out a ton of information at once. And really, <laughs> I hope you guys enjoy what you're hearing because we're, we're working our butts off to bring it to you. We are. We are. I guess there's only one left thing. One left thing? Yeah. I'm going to go with it. There's only one left thing left to do. What's that? In an oceans of podcasts, we are Cthulhu. As Cthulhu compels you to do, open the mind. And even more.